Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share their most recent work. This week, I had the great opportunity of talking with Michael Krauss, Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at the Yale School of Management. Michael's lab studies what behaviors and emotions maintain and perpetuate economic and social inequality in society. Michael's research has appeared in Psychological Review, Perspectives on Psychological Science, and Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. In this episode, Michael talks about his recent work on how much U.S. Americans overestimate how equal their country is. For example, why are some people motivated to deny the vast wealth inequality between whites and African Americans? Michael then shares how he has successfully intervened to make people's estimates somewhat more accurate. Finally, I asked Michael about advice for young researchers and how he comes up with all these interesting research ideas. If that's not exciting enough, Michael even performs a power analysis live on the podcast, but not of the statistical kind. <laughs> Without further ado, here's our conversation. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, Michael Cross. Thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for having me on. We will be talking about inequality and perceptions of inequality in this episode today. But before that, I think we have to address an elephant in the room, which is that many of our listeners might be aware that a couple months ago, of course, you announced that you were denied tenure at Yale which sparked a lot of outrage and many people claiming of course that it was a very unjustified and horrible decision i don't want to rehash everything that happened people can read up about it online but i think i'd be doing a disservice to our listeners if i didn't ask you first how are you holding up yeah yeah so um uh, no i appreciate um being able to talk a little bit about this i should say first like you know in terms of talking about this public i'm i'm happy to share Uh, details, but but like in terms of like a, for a larger audience, like a podcast, there's less I want to share in this kind of domain. And my thinking on that is it's hard enough to get fired from your job uh, like this with also, without also having to relive it for the pleasure of public scrutiny and analysis. So it doesn't feel healthy at this moment uh, when it's still kind of raw to be doing that. But I, I can say a few things about it that I think are a helpful context. The first is that tenure denials are, are difficult to handle. They're difficult personally. You know, being fired from your job, any job is going to be hard. And it has real consequences for your family, for your spouse, for my son who's five, for my daughter who's nine. They're all experiencing this in our house with me at the same time. Um, you know, it's a very personal thing to experience. So that's happening, and we're dealing with that and the various add-on effects and difficulties that have happened in that context. But part of being at least uh, public with this decision is that, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I thought was important is that you know, we we thought about at home, right? Like we thought about kind of dealing with this behind closed doors, just with each other, and it felt too like too much. Right. And so, you know, the decision to go public with the news was uh, one that we did very consciously because we needed support. 
I didn't want us like my family, but, but this is broader family. So this is like our lab, the people I work closely with, I didn't want them to have to hide this. Right. I didn't want them to have to talk in rumors um, about it and be thinking that they couldn't out- seek support themselves. Right. Cause we've got graduate students in the mix here too. We've recently graduated students who are also dealing with this. And so being public allowed all of us to talk about it, to talk about how we're feeling about it. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't expect or, you know, necessarily deserve all the support that, that we ended up getting online as a function of the decision. But I'm just deeply grateful to everybody who publicly and privately reached out, uh, allowed us to speak, to be listened to, to, um, you know, to, to have our experience be validated by their own eyes, right? Um, so that part was a really wonderful um, and unanticipated side effect of everything that's happened. And I owe everybody a drink at the next conference uh, for that. So, so yeah, I think that's that's where I'm at these days. I don't have any like other news about um, like next steps and stuff like that. Everything's still in flux. I am looking forward to the next steps. I, I, I guess what I can say about that is that this decision, you know, in terms of myself and my work, it doesn't actually affect that all that much, right? Like I'm going to continue to do the work that I do, the work that I have done since I, uh, before I got my degree, none of that's going to change. All of it's going to be the same. The only place that really loses, the only people that really lose in this uh, is the School of Management at Yale. Because everything I do, I'm just going to take with me to the next place. So that is what it is. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, on behalf of many grad students, I know we've been discussing this case and it's been, there's been a lot of love and support for you and your work, for whatever that's worth. But yeah, thank you for, for sharing some thoughts on this. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, even to just like add in, in general terms, right? Like, you know, in terms of like the work that you do and as an academic, the work that I do on inequality and inequality perceptions is really deeply personal to me, right? Like I really care about the work and put my whole heart into it and I have a stake in it, right? Like I hope we all do, right? Like I hope we all do have a stake in the psychology of inequality and how we can use psychology insights to better shape policy, better shape the world in ways that psychology informs. And so, you know, you do anything with your whole heart and, you know, something like this happens, it's, it's rough, but, but I'm also a scholar of inequality. So I know that these things happen. I know that I know how inequality works. And so it's not actually a shocking decision, even though it's a shocking decision, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the perfect segue to talk about inequality. So let's talk about your personal motivations. You say you are very invested in the topic. What made you first interested in the topic of inequality? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think for anybody can be interested in inequality and in that um, like you could be interested in it because you want to better be successful in an unequal system. Like you could try to leverage your knowledge of social science to really work that system and be higher status in that hierarchy. You know, thinking about inequality for me is... You know, I I think about it a lot in terms of narratives. So there's a lot of narratives of opportunity that people have. Like you have in your family, you have family stories. We have family stories in in our family. Um, One of them is about my great-grandfather, Jimmy Yamamoto, early 1900s. 
He's working on a Japanese freighter going back and forth from Japan to the States. And he's heard about the American dream, right? Like he's heard about it. He's hearing that this is the place to go. And so he jumps out of a ship, swims ashore in Seattle. I think he has a couple of silk, silk scarves or something like that. That's, that's the plan, right? The plan is to trade and then find work and then the American dream, right? Up, up, up. So it keeps moving east, you know, comes to shore in Seattle, ends up living in Camas Prairie, Idaho. Not a lot of Japanese people in Camas Prairie at that time or now. Ends up getting in contact with a Japanese family in Utah. That marries uh, my great-grandmother, Mary Kano. And then they have uh, two kids out there in rural Idaho, the only Japanese family within hundreds of miles. We talk about that story in our family, right? Because it's a, um, you know, it's an example of the American dream really working for somebody, right? Like you've got this, you know, incredible story of struggle and eventually settling in a new place. Um, You're your success in that, like my great-grandfather's success in that paves the way for me being a professor, right? Like that's directly related to the struggle and the um, perseverance that happened there. Um, And we often focus on that, right? Like in your family, you'll find that you focus on like, if great-grandpa was like getting things out of the mud, like you can like work extra hard for what you're doing um, and be successful in school because of that sacrifice. But what's interesting and what's relevant to my work is that, and the broader you know, psychology of inequality is that that story is critical for striving and effort, but the other things that happen aren't, right? They often detail a violent, difficult living environment that pushes people down, that is unjust and unequal, and that exposes people to harm disproportionately, right? And it's just it's just interesting and captivating for me as a as a person who's under trying to understand the world and inequality, to see how we put so much emphasis on the former story of struggle and triumph, and not on the other story, the violence um, that, that is a part of it. And so that trying to understand the psychology of that is my career, right? Like that's what I do. And so the work that we've been studying in terms of the narrative of racial progress people's tendency to overestimate equality in society, all of that comes from like, what what are the psychological drivers that lead us to really focus on the positive and ignore willfully or otherwise the realities of inequalities that persist in society? And this narrative of the American dream is really compelling. And America is really good at bringing this narrative to the world. I used to live in Latin America, in Peru, and this really lovely but impoverished village in the middle of the Andes. And so many people wanted to move to America. Why? Because all they knew about America was what they saw on TV. All they saw on TV was Fast and Furious. So like (laughs) New York City skyline and fast cars and all that kind of stuff. And people wanted to go there because there's these opportunities and they can rise up and then support not just themselves, but their families. And it's a really compelling narrative. And I am living in America and I'm not even American. And yet I feel some resistance when you say, maybe this American dream is not actually factually true, right? Because it just feels so empowering. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, it's motivationally compelling. You know, even as a scholar of inequality, right? Like I can't, I can't exist in a, in a headspace all the time that is like, none of this works. Everything is futile. And the darn, the people who have everything, they're going to continue to have everything. And there's little we can do, right? Like, like those are 
that's what the data suggests, right, about the world and about history. But that is not a not a healthy headspace to be in all the time, right? So it's you know instead it's about cultivating optimism, it's about cultivating hope, it's about cultivating work, right, and and focusing on the relationships that you have with people. And so you know it's very enticing, right, to go ahead and think about um, the American dream in those terms. And then of course, like the second point that you're talking about, like the marketing of the American dream from the United States, right, is is quite significant and powerful. And it's central. I would say it's probably pretty central to the identity of people in the states. And then immigrants who come here are selected for those beliefs, right? It's because, you know, you got to go through a lot of hoops to get into the States and to work here and the like. So you have to be really motivated from from the start. Like we know a lot of basic social psychology that would predict that. But yeah, like in terms of central to the identity of America, right? Like I think about sporting events, the world championship in basketball is going on right now between the Warriors and Boston. But wait a minute, why is it the world championship? Aren't there other leagues, other basketball leagues around the world? (laughs) Well, and the idea that people really want to believe in the American dream and that they can rise up and pull themselves up by the bootstraps. One prediction from that idea might be that people will be resistant to the idea that there's a lot of inequality in America and structural inequality, which is, of course, where your paper comes in that we'll be talking about today, where we talk about one specific form of inequality, which is the white-black wealth gap. How bad is this gap and how accurate are we at estimating this gap? The gap is large. It's the uh, widest measured inequality across the different economic indicators that you can measure between Black and white Americans. And so wealth, you know, is, you know, is your savings minus your debts in its most basic terms. There's a lot of different ways to measure wealth, but that's essentially what it is. And wealth super important in the United States, right? Because uh, we don't have a centralized health system. So you got to have savings in case you get sick in case you lose your job, in case a tree falls in your yard and breaks things, right? All those things are going to require savings to be able to handle. If you don't have it, then uh, you know, you're likely to go into debt or worse. So wealth, really important in the United States, but wealth is also inherited, right? And so that means that any inequalities in wages, in earnings, in a wealth accrual capabilities that have existed across the entire history of your family in the United States, they will register. Any of that will register in terms of your wealth accumulated over time. And so because of that, we have this deep history of racism in the United States that then leads to wide disparities in wealth between Black and white Americans in particular that goes all the way back to um, uh, chattel slavery and to the present moment and through all those policies. And so then the wealth gap is close to and often flirts with like 10 times the difference between black and white Americans. So when white Americans have about $100 in wealth at the median, black Americans can have somewhere between like eight and $12. And this is not my data. This is the federal government's data. Um, So don't blame me for these hard truths. You got to blame the government for that. But also that there is, isn't a lot of change across time in this, the magnitude of this inequality. So in 1963, it was about 8 to 12. In 2019, it's about 8 to 12, right? Somewhere in there. And so it stayed the same across time. To think about the magnitude of that gap, it's quite large and it shocks people is kind of the general consensus when they hear it. And you might say it's shocking that it's shocking to people because should we not be aware of inequalities like that? So, yeah. So in part, it's like it captivates us in many ways because wealth inequality of this magnitude suggests that our society is deeply broken, right? Like it's 
that something like this in wealth differences between groups, hard to explain in terms of like your individual merits, hard to explain in terms of effort and money management skills, right? Like you can't explain this away. Often people talk about educational opportunities as a way to reduce the wealth gap, but actually people go into debt because they seek out educational opportunities. So that's not something that you can educate yourself out of either. So because of all this, it's a really serious problem in our society that the, the demands a response and yet, and perhaps why, psychologically, we don't pay a lot of attention to it. When you ask people to estimate how bad this inequality is, I think you'll find something very interesting. Yeah, so um, so I, I told you the, 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 the answer. When you look at people's perceptions, and you can look at them across time as well, um, what you tend to find is that people are always overestimating. So people, I would say, uh, this is Americans in general. In our large nationally representative sample, it's about a thousand people, nationally representative in terms of race, income, and region. That sample, around 98% of people overestimate um, the amount of equality between Black and white Americans. They do so in 1963, which is our earliest estimates of Black-white wealth inequality. And there they're off, it's like around $50 in that study is the estimate for Black wealth versus 100 white wealth. And then in that study by the most recent estimates in the present, so that's 2016 data at that point, our sample says that the gap has, has decreased from 50 to 100 to closer to 90 to 100. So, um, you know, people are estimating that things have improved from the 1960s, not an unfounded estimate, a guess based on, you know, their experiences with successes on our road to racial progress and the like. But the, the 90 estimate is pretty far off. So it's pretty inaccurate relative to the 8 to 12 I quoted you earlier, right? So people are pretty optimistic about how things are changing and how equal things are now versus how they used to be. Are there any individual differences in accuracy? That is, are there some people who know how bad it is and other people who are just even more delusional than the average American? Right. So there's, there's a lot of really consistent data on like a few like demographic things, but then also some psychological variables that are pretty interesting, right? So higher status Americans tend to be more inaccurate, right? And so lower status Americans tend to be more accurate. So this means that people who are uh, lower income, uh, black Americans relative to white Americans, uh, these people tend to be more accurate. And it's um, there's it's likely to be um, an experiential thing and a motivational thing in that um, you have experiences in the world that reveal the inequalities that you're you're having to contend with in society. But then also, you know, you're a part of this group that is being treated unfairly. And so you're more able to, you know, say that you know, things are unequal and I can accurately capture, more accurately capture wealth inequalities. Um, so that's on the demographic side. On the psychological side, there's a component of conservatism that leads to greater inaccuracy and it's belief in a just world, right? So the more that you believe that the world is fair, that it treats good people well and bad people poorly, the more you tend to believe that consistently across studies after you control for everything, uh, that tends to predict overestimates. Other things that are psychologically interesting that are related. Um, so people who have, in some of our more recent data, knowledge of Black history tend to be more accurate. People who tend to be more optimistic tend to be less accurate, uh, right? So more optimistic about general inequalities. Um, 
if you are more wrong about the magnitude of general wealth inequality between the bottom and the top, you're also more wrong about racial inequality on the wealth gap. Although those, um, the correlation is around 0.2 to 0.3. So it's not the whole story, uh, just like a general trend to be, to be overestimating. So those are some of the things uh, that predict pretty consistently, even if you, you know, uh, control for all the other things. Now, one might say, why should anyone care what Americans think about inequality? Most Americans are not policymakers. They are not going to change how unequal the society is. Why should we care? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, I could see how people might ask that. Um, and certainly it's not enough to know, right? So like, you know, one thing that you could think about this um, when you see how wrong people are is, wow, we got to educate people, right? We got to educate people about this. They need to know the magnitude of the inequality because if they did, then they would care and then they would do something. Um, so that's that's not true, right? Like, like if people know inequalities, that does not in any way lay the all the necessary conditions for action and policy change, right? That's just not that's not enough. Um, but it's a necessary precondition. So I would contend as a teacher, right, that knowing some magnitude of inequalities that exist and persist in society um, is one precursor to the possibility of future action. Right. So if we are aware of and not afraid to talk about how racism persists in society, how it affected people in the past and continues to affect people in the future, if we can have some purchase on really being able to openly and publicly talking about that, there is that is one of the conditions, one of many, but one of the conditions that can promote connection between policy and people's uh, you know, public opinions, right? It doesn't, um, it doesn't happen right away. And there aren't going to be like one-off solutions for it. It's about a public that's more informed, less misinformed about the actual state of the world. Um, and that can lay the groundwork for more realistic perceptions of, you know, like the magnitude of the changes that are necessary in society, right? So if, if, if wealth inequality is super large, like it is, between black and white Americans, you don't propose things like, I don't know, um, after school reading programs to, to reduce the wealth gap, right? It needs to be a bigger structural change that's, that's more reparative in its action um, uh, to really reduce that. So you start to think bigger in terms of policy, more comprehensive. And that's also, you know, one of the benefits of being more accurate. Okay, you have sold me on the following ideas. Inequality is bad. We don't know how bad it is, but we should know how bad it is. <laughs> the next logical step here is how do we make people realize how bad it is? And you have the solution for that too. And this is where your paper comes in. You have tried out different interventions to make people realize how bad it is. And you found that some of them were more effective than others. That's right. And, um, you know, I think this paper comes from just this notion. So, you know, we're dealing with data about inequality all the time. I'm often curious about the role that it can play in policy discussions, right? There are always the possibility that you can talk about inequalities. And this is work by your colleague, uh, Jennifer Eberhardt, and it can lead to some pretty problematic thoughts about the world, right? Where you, where you reveal an inequality in incarceration rates and people double down on really problematic theories about um, aggression that uh, groups like Black Americans might have, right? To, to explain why those inequalities are happening 
And so this is a problem with data, right? You go around talking about inequalities and people can make their own beliefs um, and fill in their own explanations, quite racist explanations for those inequalities, right? So one of the solutions might be, let's not talk about data when we're trying to persuade people. That's dangerous. It leads to some of these problems where people are misinterpreting it or using it to forward their own problematic arguments. But, um, you know, I've also been a teacher for a long time. And, um, you know, you do have these experiences when you talk about inequality in the classroom, wherein there's people in the room who, when they know, it changes them right? Like it changes how they think about inequality. It makes them think bigger about the possible solutions. Sometimes it changes the trajectory of what they're going to study in the future and how they're going to relate to the world. And so what is the, what are the ingredients, right? Like what are the ingredients necessary to talk about the data in that way that's compelling, but then also leads to this kind of change? So that's the uh, impetus for this study, right? So what we do is we have basically three experimental conditions, where we're trying to get people to have a more realistic understanding of the magnitude of the current black-white wealth gap. The first condition uh, that we hope works is this data condition where we're telling people about the magnitude of racial inequality, first the magnitude of the black-white wealth gap, but then also the magnitude of the education gap, the magnitude of the gap in um, mobility, class mobility, and then um, uh, magnitude of uh, the gap in terms of housing. Um, housing inequalities. So we're giving them data on these inequalities between Black and white Americans, and we're comparing this condition to a condition where people are getting story about a single single family, Black American immigrant family who is struggling, you know, to contend with the inequalities that exist um, in their own lives in these same domains on wealth, on housing, on education, on their path to going to college. So those are the two comparisons, and then we have a third condition. That's the combination, right? You've got this story, and then you zoom out to the data. And then the question is, so given these three conditions, which one is going to lead to more realistic perceptions of the magnitude of the black-white wealth gap? Is the data about the magnitude of the wealth gap going to be necessary? The answer tends to be that the data are needed, right? Like to really grab a hold of the extent of the magnitude of the black-white wealth gap, people have to know, right? People have to be told. Uh, so at least that's the, um, the initial finding. But of course, this is a longitudinal study. And so what we also find is that over time, the uh, people's learning decays, which is a, not an unsurprising thing, but they learn that the, the, the gap is large. And then we ask them again, three to six months later, and again, close to 18 months later, and people get a little less accurate across time. Wow. Data over narrative. That's not a very common finding, as you say, right? Oftentimes we talk about the power of storytelling and you don't want to be the scientist who just talks about the data. But here the kind of story people invoke is, yeah, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. These people just have to work harder. That's kind of their fault. And so that's, of course, not the narrative that we want. Right. Uh, and and so it's a, it's a good control condition, right? Because I think our instincts are that the narrative is always going to work. And of course, like you're alluding to, there's a lot of studies where the narrative is quite good in these kinds of situations for helping people care, right, about policies. And so you don't want to leave with like thinking about or hearing about this study that we did and think, oh, I guess we got to abandon narratives. Actually, narratives are quite good and quite powerful. And there are going to be domains where, where data don't work at all. Um, but it's really in this kind of special case situation wherein the wealth gap is so large. And then stories, especially the story that we use, 
also tends to zoom people in on the family in particular. So like, what are solutions for the family? And I think those are the two things that are really working against the narrative condition in our study that lead it to be less effective, right? Because it's, uh, so, you know, we have some exploratory findings about speech in the, in the paper, wherein um, it's not the case that the people in the narrative condition don't care about racial inequality. In fact, they seem to care at least as much as the people in the data or the combined conditions, but they're really focused on helping the family with individualized kind of solutions about how you navigate the educational system and the challenges in it, how you catch up if you're behind. These are very, um, these are very, you know, critical thinking, you know, deeply invested kind of suggestions that people are making in these conversations that we record right after the manipulation. But they're not really helpful in terms of system-wide inequalities that are affecting families, right? You don't catch up after generations of wealth inequality with extra striving or effort. And so I, I think this is a really a special case, like I said, wherein knowing the data can help you really understand the magnitude of these inequalities um, between Black and white Americans in terms of wealth, and then helps you think more structurally. So less in terms of achievement and more in terms of how society has to change a little bit. Education system has to change a little bit to reduce those inequalities. Not to be too cynical about these findings, but okay, people overestimate how equal society is. Then you tell them how unequal it is, and they correct their estimates somewhat, but they're still inaccurate, even though you give them the actual numbers. One could, could be cynical about that and say, you give people numbers and still they overestimate equality. So a, a couple of things about that, right? Like, so first, they're not, like, not everybody's perfect in terms of their estimates. Um, there is resistance to our data, right? So we tell them the data and I think there's skepticism, right? Where'd you get this data? That's not consistent with my experience. That's not consistent with my narrative. So it, it really speaks to how powerful some of these narratives of progress are, some of our own lay understandings of racial inequality are. And so it's going to take more than like a single, uh, you know, handful of minutes kind of intervention to truly penetrate that and like elevate your understanding to a way that you have like a different theory of the world and how unequal it is. So this is one of the things that we got asked for the review process, right? So like, what's the dose response, right? That you need for this kind of intervention to work well, to where people are not decaying in terms of their learning. And, you know, our response in the paper and the discussion of it is basically no single dose is going to work, right? You're dealing with these narratives that are constant and central to how we understand the world around us and American society. And so being able to intervene on them is going to take something that's more constant. And so, you know, I'm thinking about things like the success of PBS and helping kids read, right? Like how ubiquitous a programming structure like that can be for messaging about inequalities, right? And helping people grab that understanding. So um, it's really about like education plays a role, but it has to be constant and it has to be centralized and it has to be. Um, you know, part of our um, national strategy so you can undo some of these narratives, which is why, you know, potentially um, it's so important for people to be able to talk about racism in schools, to have conversations that are real and to fight hard to maintain those rights for teachers in public schools throughout the United States, right? Like it's um, that fight I see is really directly related to some of the misperceptions that, that keep coming up in this work. 
Yeah, zooming out a little bit, I know that you and Jennifer Richardson and other people in the space have been talking about the so-called myth of racial progress, right? This idea that, yeah, we used to be an unequal society in the past, but, you know, it's better now, or it's becoming better, or it's even equal now, so let's move on to other problems. Which, of course, can be just a rationalization to be complacent and not do anything about the still pervasive inequalities that exist. How do you think... Knowing about this research, <laughs> how do you think about actually celebrating actual wins that we might make in society? Small wins where we actually become more equal without giving people license to be complacent. So, I mean, for me, I think there's hope. Um, there's hope in that needs to be a part of uh, dismantling any myths about progress that we might have. I think you can understand that you know, in, in the context of racial inequalities, that progress can exist at the same time as, as losses, as stagnation. And, and it's important to acknowledge like all of that is happening at the same time. So what that means is that, you know, when I beat the drum about how we have these, this, you know, grand narrative of racial progress that is inconsistent with the realities. What I'm hoping is that more people will join in their scholarship, in their activism, in their work to try and dismantle some of these inequalities, because it's not that we can just sit around and wait for that to happen, right? There are really powerful, really motivated really strongly institutionalized forces that prevent that from happening. So it really takes a concerted effort to like keep pressure on society to open up the possibilities for progress. Right. But then, you know, so as we're doing that, so the hope is that we'll, we'll do that. You can't really do that if you don't have hope that things can change and a belief that you, that you can change them. And so we want to have a, you know, enough cynicism to reduce kind of this, riding along, worried that things are bad things are going to happen. We want to engage people in, in, in policy, engage people in activism. And part of that is being real, but then part of that is having hope. And so I think, you know, when I talk about this work, I often try to pivot at the end to hope, right? And so, so for me, like one of the things that's hopeful is like uh, for my family, right? So personal story about this is, you know, my son is five now. And I think about myself when I was five and, you know, I really liked superheroes and comics and the like, and, you know, my son and I, I forget, it was the last summer or the summer before, but we watched Shang-Chi, right? Amazing, amazing experience wherein he's seeing a superhero that looks like him. Uh, it's an amazing experience, right? Uh, that's progress, right? Like that, being able to see that, we're here for that. And, and he's here for it. He does not know a world where Asian man can't have superpowers, right? Like he doesn't know anything about that. Um, so that's real. You know, that can exist alongside some of the apathy and some of the challenges and some of the myths that we have that make it hard to participate in the more just society that we desire. Yeah, it seems like a more equal society is something all of us should want or would want. I'm thinking of Richard Wilkinson's research on how You can compare rich people in equal societies and rich people in unequal societies. And of course, he finds 
rich people in equal societies are usually better off, right? Even the rich people benefit from more equal societies because everything is safer, one tends to get along, you don't have to be afraid of everyone and other groups. There's less hostility and more trust, less cynicism. It seems like a wonderful vision for the future. Then why on earth are we so resistant to it? This just needs a power analysis and then it becomes clear. Um, so the good news is, right, like, so in social psychology, right, a lot of times it's like, wow, people make bad decisions. Like a lot of times social psychology is about that. I actually, you know, when I look at public policy surveys and stuff, people work a lot better than like our government works, <laughs> than our society works, right? Like what people want are things that are more equal, more just, like people love meritocracy. And it's, and it's like, wow, I wish, I wish it was a meritocracy. That would be amazing. So people are actually quite good. And like, even if they're inaccurate about these things, their desires for a more equal society are clear. Certainly the benefits of a more and more equal society are clear to many people. But power is important too in this equation. And we have an economic system and a political system wherein power is like the answer to this question. Some people want to win. And so they're willing to do any number of things to society's detriment so that they win, so they, they die with the most toys. And so that's, I think that's the answer. That's why, even though society is better, it's like, but like for me as an individual, I get that the 30th yacht and that's more than my buddy who has 28. And so I think there are a few people who really drive some of this uh, to the detriment of us all. Yeah. So unfortunately, that's the kind of thing that's, that's preventing you know, some of this more sensible kind of policy that many of us desire from happening. That is my favorite usage of the term power analysis I have ever heard. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> that's right. When I say do a power analysis, I usually mean this, but people often think I mean the other thing. <laughs> All right, so let's say we agree we want a more equal society. Do we know how to do that? I know that some people would say, we don't know how to do that. It's impossible. Inequality is fixed, but is there hope? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's often people in the States who talk about this, right? Like, oh, the cost of that and, oh, this economy's overheated, stuff like that, right? Stuff like that happens. But there do exist more equal societies that are like, you just have to leave the United States, right? Like there are, there are examples of societies that function with healthcare, with social safety nets. There are cities where there are no homeless um, and there are programs for that. There are governments that have ha had visited atrocities on minority groups and have apologized and, and engaged in reparative action. There are pretty salient, if we were willing to look, examples of more equal societies. So the solutions are out there and they're, they're possible. What complicates it, of course, is that, you know, power is, is a difficult thing, right? Like people will want to hold on to it. And so we are in a struggle for being able to produce the kind of more equal society we desire because there are people with power who don't want to give it up, right? Like there are you know, corporate interests, there are political figures who are trying to hold on to power in ways that would, you know, make that more impossible uh, right now than perhaps it has been, you know, since, I don't know, maybe since I've been alive. So, so, 
So that I think that's my response to it, right? Like, of course, it's possible to have a more equal society. Of course, it's possible to do it in the States. Will it happen in a minute in the United States? I, I'm skeptical of that. Many of the proposed solutions, of course, focus on redistributing money, right? And you write about wealth redistribution. Let's say we redistribute money. Is that going to fix all of our psychological inequalities, right? Because it seems like it's not just the money that is unequally distributed. There's also a lot of stigma and discrimination that comes with this inequality, where we envy those who are above us and scorn at those who are below us. Do you think our psychological inequalities will catch up once we fix the financial inequalities or these separate domains that we all need to fix? Yeah, so this is an interesting thought experiment, right? So as a psychologist, we might think, right, like, so what, like, what's the order of operations, right? Do we fix people's attitudes and then that leads to structural policy changes? And then um, maybe if you were a sociologist, you might say, let's fix society, let's make society more equal, and then people will, uh, maybe their opinions won't matter as much, right? Because the, um, the material conditions have shifted. So those are those are the two possibilities. I'm I'm a sociology major as an undergraduate. And so that's my view on things is really that you change the structures of the world and people's attitudes take shape around that, right? Like how we explain inequalities will shift as a function of how unequal things are in society. Like a lot of our really racist explanations about the world hinge on there being wide inequalities between like black and white Americans for instance. Um, and so you reduce those, it will necessarily change how those, um, you know, the purchase of those kinds of explanations and make them more fringe. So at least that's my belief system, right? Like is, and, you know, that's my theory of change is you, you change people's material conditions and the psychology follows. Now, addendum to that is, of course, that you don't want to ignore the psychology, right? The psychology is central to debates about policy. It's central to thinking about how you message about policy and how you fight for candidates and the like. And so policy, in terms of policy um, discussions, that part's really relevant and shouldn't be ignored. And, uh, you know, it's all a part of that. So psychology has a central role to play in all that. But the structures are what makes the change. You said we are stuck with our inequality in the U.S., in part because there are some people who just want power, <laughs> who just want status. And having looked into the literature on status and power, One argument that I find sometimes is the idea that we all want status and power deep down. This is just who we are and everyone just wants power and we just are suppressed to different degrees by societies, which I always found strange. Like everyone wants to be respected, but I don't think everyone wants to have 30 yachts. So there must be individual differences, I hope. What do you think about this idea that everyone wants status and power? No, I mean, I, I think that's a residual of the context of where we do science and who does it. So I think an idea like that can happen in the context of a really unequal academic discipline, right? Wherein the people who study power come from a certain subset of um, societal structures and families and the like, because there are a lot of alternative ways to envision power, right? Like communal ways to envision power, collaborative ways, collective power. There's a lot of other places, a lot of other examples to pull from wherein societies are organized in ways that disseminate and distribute, you know, who gets to have a say. And so does everybody want power? Like there are very clear examples of situations and contexts where that is not the case. And so um, for me, 
yeah, that, that's, um, that's just a failure of imagination that's probably coming from like the positionality of the scientists that are doing the work. Did you just perform another power analysis? I did. On podcast? I did. <laughs> I did. I'm, I'm uh, you know, just, just send me, just send me your, your code and I will do that power analysis. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, sadly, we are running up against time. And so I want to make sure you will have a chance to add whatever else is on your mind and maybe whatever that might be to tie it into another question we like to ask our guests, which is how do you know an idea is worth pursuing? You know, for me, it's, it's pretty simple about ideas. And yeah, you know, like, I think a lot of people worry about having a good idea and like people have concerns that it's a new idea and, and concerns that it's like, is it adding? Is it doing enough? And I, I think there's certainly a way of doing our science where you could focus on that, but it leads to a certain kind of work that's, I don't know, it's focused on the literature more than the world. So for me, it's just about connecting the work that you're doing to the world around you, right? Like, how is this, how does this matter to people in their lives? Um, how is it connected to their actual experiences right now? And what's the psychology of it, right? Like, so as a psychologist, I'm asking, like, well, how, what's the role of psychology in, in the student debt crisis, in uh, fights for $15 minimum wage, right? Like, these are the questions that I ask. Like, what's psychology's role in, in these big economic forces that are impacting people in their everyday lives. And so if you're tied to something big that's happening to people in the world, psychology has an important role to play in that. And so um, that's a good idea. Uh, you know, and if you do that, if you do that kind of analysis, and of course, there's a lot of other things to have to do after that, right? You still got to work the idea. You still got to connect it to the literature. You still got to cite people. You probably got to cite people across disciplines, right? You got to figure out what other people are saying about it. And then you got to do your experimental work and, your, um, and you got to do it well. But if you continually think about the world and think about the things that people face in their everyday lives, you're guaranteed to have good ideas, ideas that are going to help us push psychology forward in the ways that matter. And so, you know, I would encourage people to just live and um, bring their psychology to that and their struggle and their happiness and their grief and their triumphs, right? Like if you bring psychology into that, you'll never run out of ideas. Wow. Well, there's only one question left I want to ask after that, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is what is your advice for young academics who want to do research in psychology, but they don't really know, do I belong? Does this research matter? Am I going to matter? What is your advice? You can have a relationship with psychology that is, you know, you're, you're trying to enter, you're thinking about entering, you're thinking like, why am I even doing this? Does this place want me? Do I have something to contribute? Um, these are all important questions that many people ask when they're thinking about going into it. And you ask them for, the, for a reason, right? Because sometimes psychology sends you signals that you do not belong, that your ideas aren't good. Like there's literally senior people who are telling you these things you know, in some ways, right? It could be a manuscript review, could be a like offhanded comment at a conference. Like, you know, there's a lot of ways that people are telling you these things. Some of them are subtle. What are you doing here? Uh, are things that people can be asking, right? So it's real to be asking these questions because the field can be, can be saying these things to you. My own sense is that you're so needed in a field that's saying those things. So that is making you question your place. You don't have to be here. You can certainly do amazing things elsewhere, 
But if you decided to take on psychology as a job, as a profession, the field would benefit from having you here. And so it's not your responsibility to fix that. You're not, not your responsibility to stop that from happening to people in the next generation. But if you decided to stay here and you decided to take that on, wow, like how much benefit that we all get as a result of that struggle, it's big and important. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think you don't have to, you certainly don't have to take this on, but we love it when you do. Incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time. Sure, definitely, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsypod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.